There is a recognition that building community is a requisite foundation for building a better world. We see women and girls engaging in deeply relational, collaborative, and supportive ways, taking the necessary time, making the necessary space, investing in the weft and weave between us. It's clear that we are all in this together, that our fates are intertwined. And in many ways, success requires building the largest, strongest team possible. To address our climate emergency, we must rapidly, radically reshape society. We need every solution and every solver. As the saying goes, to change everything, we need everyone. What this moment calls for is a mosaic of voices, the full spectrum of ideas and insights for how we can turn things around. We must summon truth, courage, and solutions. This trifecta can move us forward through the aching uncertainty. That's from All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine K. Wilkinson. Now, this collection of essays, poetry, and stories from women at the forefront of the climate movement discusses issues and solutions that will lead humanity forward. Usually when I read a book like this, I find some powerful big ideas that I can't wait to share with you. And with this book, there are more than 40 fantastic essays, and they were all filled with interesting insight and revolutionary ideas towards progress. So after deep consideration, I just instead chose my favorite five essays because their ideas resonated with me so deeply. So are you ready to see all that we can save? It does take all of us, but these essays from these remarkable women are on the forefront to change the world and to change our lives. Essay number one, Collards Are Just As Good As Kale by Heather McTeer Tony. Quote, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so... Even so, faith apart from work is dead. In other words, you can pray and believe all you want, but without action, ain't nothing gonna happen. You just wasting the Lord's sweet, precious time. We can plant seeds, but without watering and tending the garden, nothing grows. We can talk about how awful our elected officials are on issues of climate ch justice and civil rights, but if we don't go vote, the tenets of my faith require that we tend and keep God's creation. The idea of my salvation is an idea of freedom that carries with it the sense of responsibility to care for all things, to care for one another better. Now, this piece spoke to me from the title alone. Now, I live in Washington State right now, but I grew up in South Carolina. I had never even heard of kale until I moved to the Pacific Northwest. Now, it definitely wasn't a Southern Baptist. I did grow up in a very religious household, but also a household that believed in protecting the environment. So my mom instilled in me the belief that God may have given man, quote unquote, dominion over the earth and plants and animals, but it wasn't to exploit or to squander. The gift of the earth was just that. And my mom demonstrated not just with her words, but her actions, that she believed that we were stewards of the earth. We must take care of the gift that God has given us. A reading Heather McTeer's Tony's P 
piece about Southern environmental movement reminded me of my own upbringing, but also opened my eyes a little more to the issues the author faced and the challenges that she has stepped up to face. She says, environmental justice is a fundamental civil rights issue, and the rural South is plagued with so many critical needs and civil rights concerns that it's hard to keep up. My faith, though, keeps me focused. And through it all, I know climate change is a threat to black life. African-Americans, black women, particularly Southern black women, are no strangers to environmental activism. Don't believe the contrary stereotypes. Many of us live in communities with polluted air and water. Many work in industries from housekeeping to hairdressing, where we are surrounded by toxic chemicals. We live in food deserts with limited healthy options, and the options that we do have are often laden with pesticides and growth hormones not intended for our well-being. Now, this is far from the first time I've heard how marginalized communities are most affected by climate change. These communities often create the least negative impacts as well. Now, think about outside the United States, like island nations that don't drive a lot of cars, don't pollute their rivers, eat more locally sourced food, and don't have a lot of big corporations. Yet, these island nations are disproportionately affected with rising sea levels, stronger storms, and depletion of fish populations, just to name a few issues. The U.S. isn't different. I remember when Katrina hit New Orleans, I was struck by the devastation. But when I lived there, not two years after the storm, I saw how the Garden District and the nicer areas of New Orleans had rebuilt and were recovering. Other more devastated areas that hadn't recovered were mostly those in low-income housing or or the marginalized communities. We are at a critical point in climate change, and we don't have time to sit around waiting for someone else to make decisions. Luckily, simple ways that also create inclusivity, diversity, and equity are part of the answer and will positively affect change. Now, essay number two, How to Talk About Climate Change by Catherine Hayhoe. Quote, our biggest problem isn't skeptics who perpetuate the idea that science is somehow optional or a matter of opinion. It's that when it comes to supporting climate action, the urgency just isn't there for many of us. 73% of us also believe climate change will affect future generations, but only 42% think it will affect us in our lifetimes. This isn't about saving the planet. The planet itself will survive. The question is what will happen to the rest of us who live here? That's exactly why talking about climate change is so important. If we don't talk about why it matters, why would we care about the problem itself? And if we don't talk about what we can do to fix it, why would we take action or expect our community, our state, and our country to do so either? As challenging, stressful, and painful as it might be, addressing climate change begins by actually talking about it. And before reading All We Can Save, I had never heard of Catherine Hayhoe, but this very famous writer and activist really resonated with me in her piece. I know talking about climate change crisis doesn't feel, you know, fun. Perhaps, as another favorite piece we'll talk about in a moment, we feel like party poopers whenever we bring it up. It can feel a little bit like Debbie Downer ruining everything. 
However, it doesn't have to be a struggle. And as the author says, we need to talk about it. Luckily, this essay gives the reader some great tips for doing just that. Her number one recommendation, as Catherine Hayhoe says herself, connecting the dots between climate change and what matters to each of us helps us recognize the most important truth of all. It isn't a matter of moving climate change further up our priority list. The reason we care about it is because it already affects everything that's at the top of our priority list, our health, our families, our jobs and the economy, the well-being of our communities and those less fortunate than us who live in them. To care about a changing climate, we don't have to be a tree hugger or an environmentalist, though it certainly helps. As long as we are human alive today, then who we already are and what we already care about gives us all the reasons we need. Today, when I encounter someone who's doubtful about the reality or the relevance of climate change, I don't start by talking science. Instead, I try to identify something we have in common. Now, I relate to this in a lot of ways. Discuss climate change effectively. We must employ empathy, meeting others where they are at and find ways that matter to them and maybe not necessarily to us so that we can connect them to this earth in a healthy and positive way. I remember my first guest interaction that opened my eyes to the power of empathy and meeting others where they are. So I was sharing information about local foods and how it can be more like black bears. And yes, I brought up how eating locally reduced our carbon footprint and decreased our individual impact on climate change. Now, one of the visitors sneered, I don't believe in climate change. I was a little taken aback, but I quickly recovered and said, that's, that's okay. In fact, let's take that off the table. And then I asked what was important to him. His answer was his own business. He owned a local hardware store in the town. And that the other thing that was very important to him was his family. And then it was my turn. Oh, I understand. Would you believe that by eating local, you are supporting your own community, just like the farmers that depend on you for fixing their equipment or their other structures? And when you eat locally produced foods, you tend to eat a lot healthier. It's better for your community and for your family. At this point, the man nodded and he completely agreed with me. He ended up taking my action sheet, which was a list of local farmers markets, and signed the pledge to practice eating local for a month. Now, this had nothing to do with climate change, but by talking to him about things that mattered to him, we both got what we needed. Uh, this is what I do think that Catherine Hayhoe is really talking about. Empathy is needed to make tough conversations easier to endure, and that connects each of us to the world, one small step at a time. Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these Notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. And essay number three is one of my favorites. Wakanda Doesn't Have Suburbs by Kendra Pierre-Lewis. Quote, only one mainstream vision of the present starts with the premise that humans can live in equilibrium with their environment. Black Panther and the fictional African country of Wakanda. 
The transition from lush countryside to a bustling city is so abrupt, so fantastical, that it's easy to miss what the camera is really telling us. That Wakanda can maintain its ecosystem in part because there are no suburbs. Black Panther's vision of Wakanda rejects the oft-repeated story that we humans and our environment are natural enemies. Instead, it tells a story in which humans have become technologically sophisticated while maintaining a flourishing relationship with their surrounding environments. Okay, to be fair, maybe at first I just like this essay because I'm a huge Black Panther fan, but I really did enjoy this piece for its moral and how powerful stories can be and how we can influence how we face struggles based on how we tell these stories. Are we sharing stories that we are destroying the planet and that we can't have progress and a healthy ecosystem? Or are we sharing hopeful stories that demonstrate our advancement and the protection of the earth can coincide? So we have these dystopian futures that are very, very popular sci-fi subgenre right now. However, most of them portray a broken earth that's either uninhabitable, like the 100, or it's very fractured, like the fifth season or the Hunger Games. And this perpetuates the idea that we cause irrevocable harm to the planet and that our progress as a society comes at an unavoidable cost of destroying the planet. Now here's how the author puts it. She says, a critical undercurrent of history and science classes is that the idea of perpetual progress, that progress we are taught, has always come at the cost of, env of the environment. From smog-filled skies to landscape devoid of birds as chronicled in Rachel Carcel's Silent Spring, and of course the idea of progress itself implies that there's something wrong with the present and with our place in it. When we talk about climate change, there's often a hidden resignation, like of course we harm the earth. What if instead the story we tell about climate change is that of opportunity, one for humans to repair our relationship with the earth and re-envision our societies in ways that are not just in keeping with our ecosystems, but also make our lives better. And yeah, okay, so as I mentioned, Black Panther isn't a dystopian future, but it's a story that I prefer. It's that story of us keeping with our ecosystems, but also making our lives better. The hero has a beautiful relationship with his people, with his land, and with his nature. That's also the point, right? We need more stories of this type of healthy relationship between technology, the planet, and between communities. How a nation is wealthy because it's fair and because it's just, not just to the citizens, but to the planet itself. So this one piece alone inspired me very much to share some of my stories, provide hope and inspiration to others. Stories are powerful. It's why we remember stories far longer than facts and figures. And the stories we share will dictate how much hope and courage we will have when facing challenges ahead. So what will your story be? And how can you write a hopeful and happy ending? Essay number four is called At the Intersections by Jackie Patterson. Quote, what I saw post-Katrina continues to haunt me. That experience also motivates me to support community resilience ahead of disasters and advance systemic disaster equity during and after emergency situations. 
Afterwards, I did international work as a human rights activist focused on gender justice and its intersections with finance, violence, HIV, AIDS, and climate change. In a focus group of women from Mulanga, South Africa, the participants expressed their need for female condoms. As a result of climate change drying up waterways, girls have to walk farther just to get water needed daily for their households. The likelihood of sexual assault is so extreme, it is better if the girls wear condoms whenever they go to fetch water. A woman who left her native land of Cameroon because the crops had dried up in her community was raped at the border crossing and became HIV positive as a result. These stories drew me to tears. There is a pandemic of devastating impacts at the intersection between violence against women and climate change. And like the author, that story drew me to tears as well. And just after I read All We Can Save, I took on the autobiography of Wangari Matai, the Kenyan environmental and women's activist, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and the first African woman to receive the honor for her work with the Green Belt Movement. Here's the thing. She talks about similar issues when she was growing up that Jackie Patterson shares from her time in South Africa. And this just breaks my heart. Climate change is not fair. It is not just. But this is far from an environmental problem alone. It is a social justice issue, a humanitarian problem, and even an economic, economic problem. And we can argue until we're blue in the face about how this is a moral dilemma and the men committing these atrocities are horrible people. But honestly, you know how we solve this problem? We start fighting for climate change action now, even back home where we live. We take our legislatures to task, vote for those who will enact laws and aid for our country and other countries struggling with climate change. Perhaps our actions won't bring back the rivers, but I will also admit after reading about Wangari's work and how she did just that by empowering women to plant and care for trees, I truly believe that climate change solutions and social justice live at the intersection together. We're going to dive further into Wangari's life next week, but it's important to look at all the impacts our crisis is having on the planet, not just the environment, not just the disappearance of species, rainforests, and coral reefs. It's about our struggles as humans and taking care of each other. And finally, essay number five, Under the Weather by Ash Sanders. Quote, a report released in 2012 by the National Wildlife Federation warned that climate change is creating a mental health crisis. According to a 2017 report by the American Psychological Association and Eco-America, acknowledging the reality of climate change and its consequences can trigger chronic fear, fatalism, anger, and exhaustion, a condition that psychologists are increasingly referring to as eco-anxiety. Now, Under the Weather was by far the longest piece in the whole book, but it was one filled with the most stars and sticky notes for me. Eco-anxiety is a real and ever-growing ailment that is hitting not just activists in the U.S., but around the globe. Pair this with the burnout and compassion fatigue, and you have a huge risk for depression or worse. 
And we absolutely have to take care of the planet. We really do. But we cannot take care of the planet until we start taking care of ourselves and our mental well-being is paramount. Now, Ash Sanders asks us if we have to make a choice, caring for yourself or caring for the world. Now, I don't feel it's a Sophie's choice, a either or, but actually a yes and. We take care of the world by taking care of ourselves. Now, meditation alone is great, but it's not going to solve eco-anxiety. Getting enough sleep is the foundation for physical and mental health, but it's not the only thing that's going to matter. And I agree, therapy is fantastic, but if we still feel alone and unheard by the rest of the world, it's not going to magically change us. We need to care for ourselves so that we can help each other as well. We are all in this together. Now, here are some more musings from the author. She says, meanwhile, everyone around me was fine. Most of them weren't climate deniers, yet none of them seemed disturbed by what they claimed to know. When I talked about how I really felt, environmental leaders cautioned me. The key is to be positive, they said. No one likes doom and gloom. For me, though, stress and anxiety has taken its toll. My partner and I fought constantly. I had nightmares when I fell asleep and daymares when I read the news. I was sick all the time. I came to hate humankind, its happiness and calm. I went to therapists who stared at me quizzically. I was sad about what? The end of the world, I said again and again. Finally, at a loss, they diagnosed me with depression. Glenn Albert arrived in New South Wales, Australia, to write a book about ornithologists. He was confronted with an entirely different vista, a massive clear-cut coal mine. Albright was an environmental writer and advocate, and he was accustomed to people asking for his advice. But the desperation, sorrow, and panic in these voices constitute something different, palpable grief. It was apparent to Albright that the resident's pain was emotional as well as physical. He started to see a relationship between environmental and psychological distress, between the health of the land and the health of its people. The word he came up with was solastalgia, a portmanteau of the Latin souls, which means abandonment and loneliness and nostalgia. Now, Albrecht's study on solstice was the first of its kind. Since then, additional research has demonstrated a connection between environmental and psychological distress. The environmental movement has been collectively trying to solve this problem for years. Its solution has been to gather more data. It hasn't worked. In the wake of environmental inaction, many activists have started to shift the, the emphasis towards emotions not facts. The key strategy is to name those emotions and normalize them. Most humans respond better to manageable, hopeful amounts of information tied to concrete, doable actions. But I wonder if, in the end, what is more important isn't choosing optimism or pessimism, but honesty with oneself. That's those last two that really stood out to me. We need to normalize the idea that we may need extra mental health to deal with the climate crisis. And we need to remember we can only do that by taking rest as much as we need and choosing to be true to ourselves, to our health, and to the the health of the planet. 
As a PS, does anyone feel Trevor Moad vibes with the statement, in the end, what is important isn't choosing optimism or pessimism? It's neutral thinking, my friends. Neutral thinking. So there's my quick look at all we can save. Please let me know your thoughts. Grab a copy. I know that, in fact, many zoos carry this book in their gift shops, or you can download the audio from your local library. It's a fantastic read, and with more ideas than I could pack in a dozen zoo notables. We're going to head out of here with some of these quotes. These are all from the book, All We Can Save. Mary Oliver says, May I be the tiniest nail in the house of the universe. Tiny, but useful. In an essay titled S Beyond Coal, Mary Ann Hitt tells us we can't leave people behind. If we leave folks behind, our progress will be fragile and flawed. But if we bring everyone along, we're building a better future, one that the coal, oil, and gas industries won't be able to unravel. In the book, it says it takes just 3 to 5% of a population getting active, voting, donating, taking to the streets, talking to their neighbors for a campaign to win. Heather McTeer Tony tells us, because to care about climate change, all we really have to be is a human living on planet Earth. Heather McGee says, inequality and climate change are the twin challenges of our time, and more democracy is the answer to both. Catherine Hayhoe tells us the number one thing that we can do is the exact thing we're not doing. Talk about it. In the essay titled Mothering in an Age of Extinction, Amy Westervelt tells us in any moment we can choose to show up. The editors, Ayana, Elizabeth Johnson, and Catherine K. Wilkinson, write in the essay Onward, the last one in the book, all we can save. All speaks to the whole, each and every, nothing left out. All is connected. We speaks to the collective, to collaboration, to community, to the relational work at hand. Can speaks to the sheer determination and save speaks to our opportunity and duty to protect nature, ecosystems, species, and one another. We are one another's keepers. Save also acknowledges how much has already been lost. So where do we go from here? First, we take a breath. And the very last paragraph of the book is this. We hope this book embodies that kindred circle. If there is one theme that runs through the collection, it's a... It is ferocious love for one another, for earth, for all beings, for justice, for a life-giving future. Let's move forward with love, not conquest, humility, not righteousness, generous curiosity, not hardened assumptions. It is a magnificent thing to be alive in a moment that matters so much. Let's proceed with broken, open hearts, seeking truth, summoning courage, and focused on solutions. Thanks for joining me for this new notable. We are in the midst of Black History Month, a little bit of a happy, superb owl day to everyone celebrating. Um, but we are really, again, diving into some really great Black 
uh, conservationists. And again, All We Can Save was filled with just an amazing assortment of women activists, um, conservation activists, and climate change activists. Many are people of color. And next week, as I mentioned, we are going to be tackling the the autobiography of Wangari Maathai, the Nobel Prize winner for her work in the Green Belt Movement, a South a Kenyan who is just did some amazing work and and personally my my hero, my conservation hero, the person that I look up to the most. So a very happy Black History Month to everyone. Um, let's learn what we can, not just from their history, but learn what we can do to move progress forward.